Good morning, everybody. So we are talking about Nehemiah chapter 5 today, and I've called it How to Resolve Conflict. It's a great chapter. But first, I want to share what comes to my mind whenever I think about this subject. The year was 1998, uh, November 1998 specifically. I was pastoring down in Warren, Oregon, which is about 25 miles west of Portland. We were in the midst of a building campaign, much like we are here, and it was the November elder meeting at our church. And for the first time in my almost seven years uh, as a pastor in that church, I felt the really deep sting of conflict, of division among our leadership team. Not just a little conflict, this was a deep, this was a biggie. And I didn't know what to do with it. I went home and I told my wife about it. I, Jackie and I prayed about it for a day or two, as I recalled, and I decided the only thing I really could do, as I've shared with many of you before, is that I should resign. The most painful thing I have ever been through in my 35 years of being a pastor. And whenever I speak about this subject, I can't help but remember back to that dark time in my life. Thankfully, God has used that experience to grow me. 19 years later now, I believe I'm a different person at a different church, obviously, and uh, the level of unity and oneness among our leadership team here is amazing, and I thank God for that with all my heart. So we all have to deal with conflict from time to time, and uh, many of you, many of us have the responsibility to resolve conflict. If you have any kind of leadership role at all, this is part of your job. Whether you're a parent or a coach or a teacher, whether you're a uh, leader of soldiers or a supervisor or a small group leader, resolving conflict is just part of what you have to do. So we come to Nehemiah chapter 5, and with the wall of Jerusalem under construction, the pressure on Nehemiah isn't reducing, it's increasing. In fact, in many ways, the conflict that we read about here poses the greatest threat of all. So let's begin by learning about the cause of the conflict. Grab your sermon notes if you haven't already, or download those on your app, please, and uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 5. If you're grabbing the uh, Bible in the chair rack in front of you, it's on page 401, Nehemiah 5. When Nehemiah learned about the needs in Jerusalem, he asked King Artaxerxes to send him to Jerusalem to repair the wall and to restore the people. And the project was off to a strong start, but then, as we saw last week, enemies came against them with very, very strong opposition. All kinds of attacks, all kinds of threats against them. And right after measures were taken to thwart their enemies, Nehemiah faces this now potentially destructive influence of internal division. So Nehemiah 4 is all about external resistance to God's work. Nehemiah 5 today is going to be about internal resistance to the work of God. And by the way, resistance can be active and outspoken, or it can be sort of passive and sneaky. And we might think that the passive, sneaky kind is easier to cope with, but it can be just as deadly. <laughs> Nehemiah had been appointed as the governor. We're going to see that. It's mentioned for the first time in this chapter. And no doubt sort of the weight of that office was heavy upon him as he was forced to listen to complaint after complaint 
of the oppressed, especially when much work remained on the wall and the enemies, their enemies were just outside the gates. Representatives of three distinct groups pressed their cases with the governor. The first to be heard were the laborers who with their large families were dealing with a food crisis. First was this food crisis. And the background of this emergency is the people are spending all of their time working on the wall and they didn't have time to keep working on their gardens and to keep raising food. Maybe there was also the factor there that there simply wasn't enough food planted to deal with the influx of, of all these new people who would come from Persia. So let's begin by reading from or listening as I read Nehemiah 5 beginning at verse 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. So we see here the first mention of a famine. More mouths to feed than there was food to feed them. A food shortage. And it's interesting to me to notice, just a, an aside, if you're doing the work of God, they were doing the work of God, and yet God allowed them to experience this famine. Why? I mean, they were doing exactly what God directed them, led them to do, right? A good observation here is to notice that even when you're doing what God asks you to do, when you're in the will of God, that doesn't mean you're exempt from the common problems of life. It doesn't mean your car's not going to break down or you're going to have an accident. It doesn't mean that you're not going to have a health crisis of some kind or something else altogether. Just a, a little observation. But the first cause of conflict was this food crisis. The second group they, that spoke up had a complaint about the taxes. Heavy taxes were a burden to them. That's verse 4. Verse 4 says, And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. So that's a reference to the tax imposed by King Artaxerxes. Judah was a Persian province, and just like all of the provinces, they had to pay their taxes. Probably in money, but probably also in produce from their land. That's cause number two. And it seems to me how relevant God's word is. I mean, hunger, taxes, financial stress... It could be the news from today's paper. Issue number three that is raised is the exploitation. Exploitation by their fellow brethren. They had to have food. They had to pay their taxes. So they're mortgaging their fields. They're mortgaging their vineyards. And then they're even starting to sell children to raise money. They're in that much debt. And it's altogether likely that Nehemiah had no knowledge that this was even going on until this point. So look at verse 5. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children as are their children, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards." Terrible exploitation going on. But those hard times weren't even the biggest problem here. Please go back to verse 1 and notice this phrase. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brothers. 
The issue isn't from enemies on the outside, but this is their own fellow Jews who are doing these things. The rich were exploiting the poor in the midst of the crisis. Rather than helping, rather than giving to them, they were forcing them to pay large interest amounts. They were repossessing their homes and their fields. They were even taking their children as slaves in total disregard of the misfortune that they were experiencing, thinking only of themselves. And by the way, that was clearly against the law of God. The Old Testament deals with this exact situation in numerous places. I want to give you just one example from Deuteronomy 23. It says this, You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother, interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your brother interest, that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Here and elsewhere, God has some very specific instructions about how to deal with the poor and the needy. God allowed the Jews to charge interest to other people, but not to themselves, among themselves. The Bible also said that a Jew was not to enslave another Jew. If somebody was poor and they came and worked for you, you could let them work for you, but you couldn't make them a slave. So they were blatantly violating God's word. How could that happen? Well, I think that's just a good reminder to us that the root cause of conflict and discord is selfishness. It's selfishness. Whether you have a conflict in your family or with a friend or at church or at work or somewhere else, the bottom line in conflict is always selfishness. James speaks to this in chapter 4, verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? What causes conflicts? It's selfishness, or as James puts it here, it's your pleasures. But that word refers to selfish desires. When my wants conflict with your wants, there's a problem. We're going to have a conflict, or one of us is going to uh, relent. Okay? People tend to be selfish, including me. We want our own way. We want to do our own thing. And as a result, we don't always do the thing that's best. We think of ourselves, and that creates conflict, selfishness. So how does Nehemiah resolve all of these things that are going on? Well, Nehemiah knew that this whole thing could blow up right in his face, and the wall would never get rebuilt. This conflict is much worse than just fighting an enemy out there. You know, an external enemy often rallies the troops. That sort of builds unity. But when you're fighting with each other, it creates division. It, it creates just a, a down. Okay, so, so let's consider the cure for conflict. And here's the cure for conflict. And I'm going to give you some steps out of Nehemiah chapter 5. But I don't mean to suggest that it's as easy as do step 1, do step 2, do step 3. All right? Because resolving conflict is hard. It's, it's much more of a heart issue than it is a step-by-step -step thing. By the way, the Bible has a lot to say about resolving conflict, and we'll look at a few other verses on this subject, but we're starting with the example of Nehemiah here in chapter 5. It's definitely not, though, the last word on the topic, but a helpful example for us to learn from. One other word of warning, okay? Don't expect that you'll be able to resolve every conflict in your life. That's not realistic, 
because it takes two willing parties to find resolution. Sometimes one side is interested in reconciliation, but the other isn't at all. And in that case, it's up to us to do our part, and then it's up to us to pray and ask God to change the other person's heart, because you can't force somebody to be reconciled with you. All right, here's step number one. Number one is get angry over sin. Nehemiah didn't ignore the problem. He took it seriously. And if you're a leader of any kind of group, the harmony of your people is being threatened, you better get angry. You see, as a leader, you're there to protect the harmony of your home, the harmony of your group, the harmony of your class or your team or your ministry, whatever. And sometimes it's appropriate to feel anger. It's called righteous indignation. And sometimes it's very right. Look at what Nehemiah 5.6 says. Okay? I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. He listened to the complaints. He realized what was going on. He says, and I was very angry. Anger is not always wrong. Ephesians 4.26 tells us, be angry and sin not. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. It's possible to be angry and not sin. Clearly not all anger is sinful, since this verse talks about it like this, and since God got angry, and since Jesus got angry, you can get angry and not sin. And one of the first things you need to do if there's this harmony caused by selfishness is you as a leader better get angry. Take it seriously. And understand that there's a right kind of response and a wrong kind of response. Okay? Wisdom and maturity is knowing the difference. But I would also suggest to you that most of the time, I'm guessing that our anger is probably sinful. It's the selfish kind most of the time. Not all the, not all the time, and certainly not here in Nehemiah 5. Nehemiah's anger is not a personal reaction. He wasn't getting angry. He's not striking back because his ego is bruised, okay? That's the wrong kind of anger. He's not responding in revenge. What he's responding with is this justifiable indignation. And the point is that we need at times to be angry over sin. A leader without some fire in his or her bones is not much of a leader. And when you see something that's destroying the harmony in your home or your uh, church or your whatever, whatever group you're involved in, the first thing to do as a leader is to get upset about it. Nothing will upset a leader more than division. And I am jealous for the unity of this church, for the harmony of this church. Now, the last thing that Nehemiah needed was this internal conflict going on because he already had an external conflict that he was dealing with. And that brings us to step two. The second thing we see him do is exercise self-control. Self-control. And if you only do step one and don't do step two, you're going to get yourself into a lot of trouble. Verse 7 says this. He says, I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. He didn't let his anger get him into trouble, in other words. He exercised self-control. He, he took counsel with himself. You know, hasty reactions and snap judgments only increase the problem. Nehemiah's first reaction was to get angry, but he, before he did anything with his anger, he talked to himself about it. I like that. He got alone with God. He prayed about the situation. He made sure that his perspective was right. 
The Hebrew word here means to give yourself advice. There are times when we just need to relax and talk to ourselves. We need to sit down and say, what is really going on here? Why am I ticked off? Why am I irritated? Why am I upset about this? What's really happening? And, and try to figure that out with God's help. Set aside some time for reflection. I like the way James put it in James 1.19. Our Lord's brother said, Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Now that might sound like a contradiction of my first point, but it's not. It's a contradiction. It's the antidote. Okay? It's clarifying what Paul wrote in Ephesians 4.26. Be angry and yet don't sin. See, there's a difference between man's anger and godly anger. Man's anger is when we react in selfishness. Godly anger is when we react in righteousness. And there is a big difference. James says, be quick to listen and slow to speak. And if you do those first two things, it's much easier to be slow to anger. You won't just spout off with whatever comes to your mind right off the bat. Impulsive anger almost always gets you into trouble. That's step number two, self-control. Here's step number three. Privately confront the offender. Privately confront the offender. Go directly to the source. Don't, take, don't talk to someone else about it first. Don't, don't talk to several people about it to try to get people on your side. Don't say, I've got, I've got this prayer request. Will you pray for the situation? Because that's often just sanctified gossip, right? So you go directly to the person and you go privately to them. And if somebody has offended you and you go to somebody else besides them first, you have already sinned. Listen to Nehemiah's example in verse 7. He says, I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. So he goes to them, the offenders, and he confronts them. I, you're, this is what you're doing. That's what Jesus said we're to do. That's how he said we're to handle conflict in Matthew 18, 15. It says this. Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, go to him, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So notice that phrase, between you and him alone. Jesus said, do it privately. Keep it as limited as possible. Only involve others to the degree that you have to involve them. Okay, go privately to the other person Try to resolve it with them first. If that doesn't work, Jesus then says, then you take a brother, somebody along with you, an elder from the church. And we'll see that if you continue reading in Matthew 18. But first go alone, keep it private. By the way, if somebody comes to you privately and says, I've got this problem, we've got this conflict we need to work on, thank them for that. Even if they don't do it all perfectly, thank them for trying to do it in a biblical way. That is so powerful. And that appears that Nehemiah did that. Verse 7 again says, He went to them, I said to them, You are exacting interest each from his brother. This is not a polite social visit. Right? He's not watering it down. He's confronting them with the problem. How many of you enjoy con confrontation? <laughs> not so much, all right? If you like to confront people, I think you're probably just a little weird, all right? <laughs> So uh, I hate confrontation. I want people to like me. I, I think you want people to like you. And I don't want to cause hard feelings. Okay, But I've learned that it is necessary at times to confront for the good of the team. 
I've also learned that if I don't do that, that the problem doesn't usually just go away by itself. It only simmers and festers and gets worse. And that brings me to this next principle. Leaders must have the courage to confront. The courage to confront. If you're going to be a leader, this is a skill you need to ask God to help you develop. Whether you're you're a leader of a family or a leader of a team or a ministry group, a military team, whatever it is, you must have the courage to confront, to speak the truth in love. Leadership requires courage. It's not a popularity contest. Someone said, if you try to please everybody, you're trying to do something that even God can't do. Even God can't please everybody. But you do have to have the courage to say, you know, even, I don't know how this is going to turn out. I know I might not please this other person, but for the good of my family or the good of my church or the good of whatever, I'm going to face it head on. I'm going to deal with it. And that's what Nehemiah is doing here. By the way, here's what the Apostle Paul wrote to his friend Titus about how this sometimes ends up in a church. So there's different steps to take, but sometimes this is kind of the end step. Paul said, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. You walk through the steps and you do everything you can to be reconciled with someone, but if they're not willing, in the end, you just have to go your separate ways. And one of the jobs of leadership is to warn troublemakers, to lovingly and firmly speak to a person who's being divisive. And thankfully, I don't have to do that very often. But when I do, the message is, I love you, but you can't keep doing what you're doing. God says that's not appropriate in his church. So please stop or you'll have to leave. That's part of leadership, too. Privately confront the offending party. Number four is deal publicly with public offenses. Deal publicly with public offenses. Obviously, in Jerusalem, everyone by now had heard about what was going on, how the rich were ripping off the poor. So this had to be dealt with publicly. And that's what Nehemiah was doing. He'd already gone to them privately, so now he's taking it public. Verse 7 continues with this. And I held a great assembly against them, and I said to them, We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. The private conference apparently didn't work, and so he takes it to this larger assembly. And by the way, this matches, if you compare it to Matthew 18, this matches exactly with the steps that Jesus gave us for resolving conflict. You might look at Matthew 18 on your own this week. In the presence of all these people, Nehemiah explains that he'd used his own personal wealth to buy Jews out of slavery. But now he discovers that his fellow Jews are selling their own people back into slavery. He says, this doesn't make sense. You're you're committing a sin. It's illegal for you to do that according to the law. Why? And their response was a deafening silence. You think that Nehemiah might have been a little bit nervous here at this point? I think so. This took a lot of guts. He's publicly taken on the city leaders, the city council, the wealthy people of Jerusalem, the 
very people he was depending on to fund the rebuilding of the city wall. This was a big risk. Nehemiah knew that if they took offense and rejected his advice, it could bring the building project to a stop. But he was committed to doing the right thing, nevertheless. If it meant putting the project on hold while he dealt with the sin, so be it. And I believe that shows the integrity of Nehemiah. Let's look at verse 9. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? He's appealing to their conscience at this point, and what he's saying is, for the fear of God and for the sake of the testimony to our neighbors, stop. This is not good. It's a bad testimony. The unbelievers around us are watching. They're scoffing at us. They're saying, those people are supposed to be followers of God, but look what they're doing. Listen, discord is always a bad testimony to the world. And when a church gets a reputation for being a fighting church, it loses its effectiveness. The world laughs at Christians who fight against each other. Well, leaders must not only expose problems, they must also provide solutions. And that's what Nehemiah did next, beginning at verse 10. Moreover, he says, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest, return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. So he challenges them to stop. Stop what they're doing, make restitution for what they've taken, and do it immediately. Listen to their response, the beginning of verse 12. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And with that, I think Nehemiah took a big, big sigh of relief. What a gamble to challenge the wealthy nobles like he did. Notice, even though they said, we will do as you say, he he took another step. He required some accountability in that. He required accountability. He didn't just let them promise that they would do it. He required them to take an oath that they would do it. That's verse 12 and 13. The middle of verse 12 goes on. It says, And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Not only did he require this pledge of accountability, but he also gave them an object lesson with a dramatic flair. You see, in those days, people wore these long tunics, these long robes, and often had a belt around it, and they would kind of uh, gather up the, the fabric in the middle and, and make like um, folds in it, to, like their pockets, okay? And so what Nehemiah did was he emptied out his all over the ground. It's a symbol. He says, this is what God is going to do to you if you don't keep this promise you've made. God will shake you up so bad that you will lose everything that you've got. So he's making this visual object lesson for them to think about and, and remember. And finally, the last thing that we see here is how Nehemiah gives them a godly example. 
He set a personal example for them in verses 14 to 19. That's, and really, this is the foundation of all of Nehemiah's leadership and why it was so good. He was a good example to them. Let me read that for you. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance." Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O my God, all that I have done for this people. Isn't that good? As the appointed governor, there was a certain amount that he could have demanded be given to him, but he never did that. He never took that. He realized how hard up the people were. He could have exploited them. He... His servants could have exploited them, but he didn't let them. Instead, he set a positive example. He was feeding the poor himself. He was helping with the project himself. He was doing all of this out of his own wealth. And he gave them a great example. Nehemiah says, as a leader, I have modeled unselfishness for you. So question, why after mentioning this conflict and resolving this conflict, why does he mention this example? Because conflict is always the result of selfishness. So he's giving them an example of unselfishness. He said, I I never asked anybody to do what I wasn't willing to do myself or wasn't even doing myself. And so he could say with a clear conscience, follow my example. And that too is a mark of great leadership. By the way, his ultimate motive was, he says, the fear of God. The reason he didn't take advantage of them, even though it was within his right to do so, was because he feared God, verse 15. What is the fear of God? Well, Nehemiah understood that one day he would stand before God at the judgment seat and that he would give an account for his life. So it's not that he feared that he would end up in hell, but he feared displeasing the God whom he served. He didn't want to let God down who had done so much for him. That's the fear of God. It's the beginning of wisdom. So let's talk about some application. Three next steps with God's help that I want to suggest for you today. Here's the first one. I will endeavor to resolve conflict biblically. We all have to deal with conflict from time to time, but I want to especially bring this home to our church family today because of where we're at right now. So for the next year and a half, we're going to be in a building program. We approved the facility expansion last weekend with a 97% vote. Praise God for that. That's fantastic. Uh, But I also know that wherever God wants to build, Satan wants to tear down. And just as surely as the devil tried to stop what was going on, the building in Jerusalem, 
he will try to stop, he will try to uh, hinder our project as well. So it's absolutely essential that we be united as a church. There will be enough circumstances and problems and difficulties from the outside for us to deal with. The last thing we need is for people on the inside to be nitpicking and causing division. And so what's your responsibility, you might be asking. Well, if Lake City is your family, I want to suggest that Ephesians 4.3 is a good summary of your responsibility. All right? Paul wrote this, Ephesians 4.3, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. That's your job description over the next couple of years. Make it your number one priority to promote unity and harmony in our church family. Wherever you have a group of people, any kind of group of people working together, there's going to be differences. There's no such thing as a perfect church, obviously. There's no such thing as a perfect family or a perfect business or a perfect team. There's going to be differences. There's going to be conflict at times. But God wants us to resolve those things for his glory, especially in his church family, especially here. Jesus said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If you have love for one another. Vance Havner once said, and I like the way he put it, he said, snowflakes are frail, but if enough of them stick together, they can stop traffic. <laughs> individually, I can't do much, and individually, you can't do much, but together we form this amazing body called the Lake City Family. And together, especially when we live in love, we can make a great impact for God. When we are unified, nothing can stop us from doing great things for God. So let's choose to resolve conflict biblically. Number two, I will respond to sin with grace and decisiveness. So Nehemiah is a great example of decisiveness in responding to sin and responding to conflict. I also want to emphasize the grace side today. Here's what Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 6. Paul said, Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path and be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. That phrase, gently and humbly help that person back, that's talking about our gracious response to people when they sin, when they uh, do something that hurts us, respond with grace. Realize that we could be re the recipient of the same thing sometime ourselves. Find that balance of decisive but graceful. Next step three, I will, and then fill in the blank. Just jot down whatever you need to to remember what else God's Spirit might be saying to you today. All right? So I don't know what God's Spirit might be saying, but here's a couple of other suggestions that came to mind. Maybe it's to have a serving others mentality, involved in other people's lives, involved in serving others. Maybe it's to uh, attend the SHAPE class next Saturday on March 18th to, to discover how God's gifted you and how he wants to use you to uh, impact others in this world. Maybe it's to pray more faithfully. That's the uh, prayer emphasis, the prayer campaign that Pastor Reg mentioned a few minutes ago, to pray faithfully. Whatever it is, jot yourself a note, remember what it is, pray about it this week, and, and then do it. Figure it out. All right? Let's bow, let's pray. Please pray with me.
Father, I thank you for this uh, amazing chapter, an amazing example of Nehemiah. Thank you for your precious word to us. And Father, I want to thank you for this church family. Thank you for these people here today. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for the sweet spirit that prevails in this church, for the love and for the unity that you've blessed us with. And God, I thank you for your protection over this church over the years, and I pray that that would continue. Father, we know that Satan tries to attack your church from the outside, but often the subtlest attacks come from within. So God, please protect us. Help us to be peacemakers. Help us to resolve conflicts biblically. Lord Jesus, we declare today, like we sang earlier this morning, that you are our anchor, you are our rock, and we hold on to you. We hold on to you not only in relationships and in doing church together, but we hold on to you for our very relationship with you. We hold on to you, Jesus, for our forgiveness. We put our faith in you to have forgiveness and eternal life. And friend, as I close the day, if you've never taken that first step to trust Christ as your Savior, I want to invite you to do that today. Just pray silently in your heart of hearts as I lead you in prayer. Just say something like this to God if you're looking for his forgiveness today. Father, I've sinned against you, and I know that I can't earn your forgiveness, but I can receive it as a gift. And so, Father, today I put my faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sin. I thank you that Jesus died and rose again for me to take my sin and to provide forgiveness for me. God, we thank you for that gift. We pray all of these things today in the mighty name of Jesus, our Savior. And everyone agreed and said, amen. amen. God bless you.